Hello and welcome to the Etzer John Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young. More colleges are offering micro-credentials these days, short-form online degrees that are cheaper than traditional college fare. There are plenty of questions around these new offerings, which have names like nano-degrees and micro-masters. Instead of replacing traditional graduate programs, as some had predicted, so far they're most often used by people who already have jobs but are looking to win a promotion or a new assignment. And there can be a tension between what employers want from these educational programs and what the students hope to get from them. Those were key points that emerged during a recent online panel discussion that EdSearch hosted on the future of micro-credentials. It was on the latest episode of our new series called EdSearch Live, a video town hall that invites anyone to chime in and ask questions. For the podcast today, we're bringing you highlights of that discussion. Stay tuned for that right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the EdSurge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. We're here today to talk about a big uh, and emerging topic. Of course, you all know about this, the future of micro-credentials. Many colleges are experimenting with short-form online degrees um, to try to reach new audiences and and offer new options at a lower cost. And there are implications for um, uh, the the relationship between higher ed and the workforce. There are implications for um, college completion. There are a lot of interesting issues that really come into play with micro-credentials. And of course, the upstart providers getting into the mix um, and things like boot camps and um, and even places like Udacity offering nano degrees without any kind of um, any involvement from traditional colleges. And I, these are raising a host of questions. Um, and we're hoping to go through some of those today and then really um, engage with, with all of you as well. Um, we have two guests who are, we're bringing on in a second here. Uh, I think we'll bring on now to, to help us get this conversation started. And um, we're really lucky to have them both. They, they have great perspective, um, different perspectives on this issue. First is Sean Gallagher. Um, he's the founder and the executive director of a center at Northeastern University. It's really unique. It's called the Center for the Future of Higher Education and Talent Strategy. Sean is actually also author of the book. I mean, he literally wrote the book on university credentials. It's called The Future of University Credentials, New Developments at the Intersection of Higher Education and Hiring. Um, Sean, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to join you all and actually already recognize some familiar faces in the audience. So this is a great platform and excited for the discussion. Great. And our other guest is Nikki Soares, Vice President and Managing Director of Kelly Educational Staffing at Kelly Services. Um, And as she'll tell us, she's actually, she's very um, focused right now on educational staffing, which is, of course, a very relevant topic to to everyone in our audience, um, but also has just been a... um, a, a thought leader and someone watching trends in in employer kind of attitudes and and um, behaviors and so that's a I think a really important voice when you when you talk about this you know you can have all the credentials you want but if the work if, if an employer is not going to recognize it then <laughs> that sort of throws a little bit of water on the cold water on things so Nikki thank you so much for joining this I really appreciate it thank you Jeff I'm I'm really happy to be here uh, I wanted to actually start off with both of you, just telling our audience just a little bit more about about what you do, just so we can situate you and understand where you're coming from. Um, Sean, your center, as I mentioned, is pretty new. Um, 
and it's got a long enough title that it pretty much tells us what it's about. But but if you'll just quickly say like what what is what is the purpose of the center at Northeastern? Sure, it's uh, it's very related to and, and fairly focused on this topic. Um, our mission and vision at the center is to um, study and analyze what's happening at the intersection of industry and higher education. So a lot of that revolves around uh, educational credentials as job qualifications, experiential learning, uh, bringing the voice of the employer and what's happening with employers into the world of higher ed, because there's uh, much more of an interest and imperative focused on employability. Uh, and another way that our work is focused is um, analyzing and piloting some of the next generation models that are at this intersection in terms of university employer partnerships, uh, new approaches to program design, new sorts of micro credentials, et cetera. So in addition to really being researchers, studying and analyzing these developments, uh, we're also involved in some new models. Uh, for instance, uh, Northeastern's partnership with General Electric uh, through the Equip initiative um, under the US Department of Education. Uh, we have a badging partnership with IBM. Uh, we've launched something called the iCERT uh, so I'm really thrilled that it's at the intersection of, of scholarship, but also practice at the same time. That's great. And Nikki, could you tell us a little bit more about your, your role and, and how you've kind of been watching this space? Uh, sure. Here at Kelly Services, uh, I head our educational staffing organization, and basically, primarily, it's focused on kindergarten through grade 12, also higher education, um, you know, I find this topic to be really interesting, particularly when we're talking about the national teacher shortage, what we see. So we provide workforce solutions and interim sort of measures for our public school districts, our charters, private parochial schools, uh, in terms of being able to uh, be a solution that provides a continuity of instruction in the classroom every day on the higher education side, to be able to um, be sort of a talent advisory organization to be able to help bring solutions also to place adjunct professors. Um, here at my career at Kelly Services, I've also headed up our product strategy um, in, in terms of cross our professional and technical um, careers, um, also our professional skill trades in terms of creating and innovating new solutions. So I think the topic um, is certainly what we're talking about here today is something as a human capital uh, organization we're talking about all the time. So, I mean, I think there's gonna be a lots of interesting um, parallels in terms of the topics, um, also in terms of what we see in terms of employer needs and uh, the future of work and also how talent wants to work uh, now and into the future. So I'm looking forward to our discussion. I, I wanted to start off um, with a, a question for um, Nikki, actually. One of the biggest things that any new micro-credential program needs, obviously, is for employers to accept them. Um, and I think it's, it's clear that in IT fields, uh, there have been, you know, already a surprise, surprising to some probably, but there's been acceptance, right? But my, my, just watching this and, and as to, to, to see what happens, it seems like it's going to really matter whether this can spread outside of tech. And I'm wondering what you, how much do you think employers outside of just tech fields will, um, will kind of warm to some of these things, whether it's micro masters or shorter, very short form, um, credentials online or, or, or sort of new shapes and sizes of degrees. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it definitely depends on the industry. I mean, you, know, you and I were chatting the other day. I mean, I think if you look at an industry like healthcare and certain occupations, I mean, there's definitely, you know, obviously very regulated sort of needs on credentialing and certain types of um, skills 
in demand. But I do think, you know, outside of disciplines like healthcare, we are starting to see uh, employers sort of embracing um, micro-credentials or sort of non-traditional kinds of certifications kind of degrees. Um, certainly within the education space, I think that we're starting to see the credentialing criteria kind of loosening up a little bit. So maybe it's less hours or maybe there might be sort of a non-traditional undergrad degree that could be, you know, depending on the state, you know, if a particular individual was to get sort of a shortened version of a certification um, around whatever it is educationally related, that perhaps that would be adopted based on the demand of what we're seeing. Um, I don't know that we get uh, all sorts of um, demands or requests for sort of non-traditional kinds of micro certifications or what have you, but I, I think we do anticipate in the future that we'll see that that will become more of the commonplace and to be more accepted. And Sean, I know that one of the features of some of these micro-credential offerings, I think you mentioned it even with Northeastern's experiments, are that there's a more of a, a willingness and an attempt to work with employers directly on capstone projects or other things. Obviously, though, this is a, it can be a kind of third rail topic by a lot of traditional professors because there's a lot of skepticism and concern that things become overly vocational if it goes down that road. So could you talk a little bit about that tension between kind of um, micro-credentials that micro-credentials bring out between higher ed and employers? Sure. Yeah, it's a great point. I would put the um, micro-credentialing trend or topic as a major, uh, it's sort of a major sub-theme and area that's within a bigger, broader conversation at the highest level about um, job outcomes, uh, competency-based education or competency-oriented and, and professionally-oriented education at just a very broad level. Um, so virtually all of the micro-credentials that have been launched and, and offered and where the enrollments are and where companies appear most interested, um, they're oriented toward real kind of professional and technical uh, skills, domains, disciplines, uh, certainly technology, as you mentioned, uh, but whether it's supply chain management or analytics or some aspect of business or uh, even teaching, which is another example, right? It's about the, the teacher's professional work in the classroom rather than, okay, here's a micro-credential in uh, critical thinking or uh, English composition or, or something else. Um, and so when you, when you look at the micro-credential offerings that appear to have traction and where a lot of the momentum is, you see examples of providers like, uh, or, or platforms like edX, Coursera, Udacity, uh, working with employers or focused on job skills and demands that are out there in the external market, and then going to their university or college partners and really designing to that. Likewise, colleges and universities that are offering micro-credentials, uh, and we could talk a little bit about what's the definition of micro-credential because there isn't necessarily a, a standard one. Um, I think of it really as a category uh, of um, programs that are that are shorter and smaller than a degree. Uh, we can debate whether certificates should be included because there's many types of certificates. Certificates have been around for a long time. There's badges, uh, there's trademarked terms like uh, the nano degree and the micromasters. Um, and so there's a lot going on, but most of it revolves around the needs of the job market. And I think it's happening in spheres within institutions or um, in association with institutions, partnerships with outside vendors, 
where it's in a zone, like a continuing or professional or online education unit, uh, or with a partner, where that program development process and even that orientation toward scale and outcomes is um, more inclusive of what the job market needs. Um, and, and certainly as one final comment, one thing you mentioned uh, is that you often see a capstone or a project as part of it. So it's not just documenting, here's what I studied, here's what I learned, um, but also a demonstration of what the, um, what the learner or what the student can do. Um, that's great. Well, that's, uh, we can definitely jump off from there. And you actually raised a really good point, Sean, that is probably worth having everybody chime in on. Uh, if, if, or I welcome this now. Let's open it up to, to, the, to the crowd here. Um, whether you have a question for our guests or, or a topic you'd like to raise, or if you have a, a what is the definition of micro-credential? You know, how far, um, you know, what's a useful way to frame this? Because certificates, like you said, have been around forever. Is there something, you know, how do we kind of talk about what's new here? Um, and I'm curious what people might, um, might have. Um, so let's see, there is actually a, a question here by, um, um, by Tanya Compton. Um, can we, let's see, we could bring her up if that's possible, or I can, I can read it out here. Um, it should micro-credentials be able to stand on their own or should they be embedded in a degree? Um, that's an interesting um, question to think about as far as how, whether it should be part of maybe a traditional type of either degree or, or, or system with full accreditation and all the things we've known, or is there, or is this something that should totally stand on their own as a new thing? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in first, I guess. Um, so micro-credentials, particularly uh, in, in the media or uh, by government leaders, et cetera, they're often positioned as um, disruptors of the degree and things that will replace the degree right? Uh, sort of the anti-degree in many ways. And I think there's merits to that in terms of, okay, they're, they're shorter. They're, as we just talked about, they're more targeted. Uh, partly because they're shorter and more targeted, they're, they tend to be much less expensive, sometimes even free. Uh, and so in a world where degrees are seen as a uh, costly proposition uh, and a lot of concern about debt and educational attainment, et cetera, you know, these micro-credentials are this potential solution. Um, but I think both, both things are existing at the same time where, yes, they are alternatives to a degree. Uh, Nikki might be able to speak to this, but um, in my research, I'm seeing them more often uh, in job promotion and kind of as an added benefit for a candidate or a professional where, okay, you might have your bachelor's already or an associate degree or nothing. You know, you're employed and this shows that you're kind of uh, gaining some new skills and competencies and it helps you advance more than it does qualify you for an initial job. Um, but I think micro-credentials will ultimately be woven into degrees um, along this kind of stackability trend that's happening where we're taking whole degrees, especially at the master's level, but also at the bachelor's and associate level and unbundling them and institutions are offering them out in the market in their component parts. And then we also have the reverse happening where you have these short micro-credentials that can then build up to a degree. And the, and the jury's still yeah. out. I mean, it's very early too. Yeah, and I, I also agree with that in terms of the jury being out and it's still early, but definitely agree with the point that definitely a faster rate of adoption with sort of continued education of those sort of workers or talent that are already in the job market that are established and then are just looking to continuing in terms of adding to their craft and skill sets. 
and and I you know also from an employer's perspective in terms of having it funded by employers, you, you definitely see that in more of traditional employment um, settings as well. But in terms of somebody that's sort of younger traditionally, you know, sort of in that undergrad sort of age demographic, you don't see that as much. So I do agree with what Sean is saying. Mm. Yeah, and Jeff, I know you've written about funding in one of your recent pieces, uh, employer funding for education, tuition assistance trends, and that kind of thing. And I, I haven't seen anything that's made a direct connection, but you, you can make the argument that uh, as, as employer support for traditional degree funding, sending people to grad school, you know, helping them complete an online bachelor's, et cetera, has declined modestly, there's subsequently a, a pretty significant interest among employers in providing employees with uh, micro-credentials, which are quicker, less expensive, uh, and more targeted to what they need. I mean, there's, there's always been a tension when you look at internal learning and development uh, and the training that, uh, or the continuing education that employers are supporting, uh, maybe throughout the, through the history of time, the employer has always wanted to fund the thing that's most directly relevant to their business, you know, the profit oriented, the thing that's, um, uh, you know, least expensive and is gonna generate a return uh, versus the employee who needs a mobile credential or ideally wants a credential that has some mobility so they can take it with them uh, throughout their career and throughout their life uh, to, you know, to the next employer or industry that they might work in or for. Uh, so that's an interesting dynamic where uh, so much of this, is, as we talked about, it's, it's at this intersection where it's not just the higher ed or post-secondary education world, but it's also, well, what's happening in terms of employer training and all the various companies, especially the startups that are targeting corporate learning and development, you know, they become an avenue connected through these micro credentials back to the courses and the programs that are offered by traditional universities. And so there's a lot more, I imagine our, our audience is seeing it, but I, I think due to this situation, there's a lot more competition mm -hmm. and the boundaries between academic credit and non-credit and training are, are really beginning to blur. Yeah, and just to add on to that point too, we're also seeing sort of a court, you know, an offering too in terms of when we think about war, war for talent. But this is also a retention strategy for employers as well to be able to offer that um, to their employees. Um, part of that, I think Sean hit on it too in terms of when we think about executive leadership development to be able to offer sort of micro credential kinds of experiences as well, not just based on sort of the hard kind of skills of you know, what requires for function of the job, but also for the softer skills too. When I think about emotional intelligence, kinds of micro-credential experiences and things like that that business schools offer. I mean, I think business schools now have the pressure not to only be able to offer the traditional sort of degrees, if you will, that are two year, you know, and tend to be incredibly expensive, but looking for different ways of what they can offer to enrich students. And also just in terms of employees that are already in the job market of what they can do to help sharpen those skills and make them even more competitive. Let's see, I think we have another question here. Great. From Mark Austin. Um, we have typical resistance to um, CBE, um, and that's been brought up, the competency-based education from faculty and, and others. What are the best two or three arguments for going with this competency-based approach, um, or does that undermine the academic mission? Um, there's another part to that, but uh, um, Sean, it seems like it says also at, at Northeastern, do competencies appear on the transcript? So yeah, uh, well, briefly. So if the question is partly about 
Cadet, which is known for its job market alignment and experiential learning. Uh, we, we do only have, I think, a, less than a handful of uh, truly competency-based education programs. We're launching some of our first. I think one is for undergraduate adult degree completion in the STEM fields through a Lowell Institute school, and another is um, a project management degree uh, that were recently approved. Um, so we haven't uh, dove into the competency-based education market in the way that some others did five or six years ago, but it's a, an important part of our strategy going forward. Um, we do have some e-portfolios. We do have students who are graduating with job experience that they document in different ways. And, and you know, it's, it's often paid full-time work experience at the undergraduate level uh, where they can do online projects at the graduate level or as a degree completer. Um, but I believe our academic transcripts are, are fairly, um, fairly standard in terms of the official transcript, but then you get these kind of, I don't know if it would be the appropriate word, but to, to call them kind of co-curricular transcripts. And then I, I think I don't want to use the wrong institution, but I think it's Elon University and others have developed uh, what they call experiential transcripts. And that's a whole area of innovation, too, that the question raises is, OK, how granular and this happens with badges too. how granular uh, should these uh, credentials or the documentation of the competencies be? A degree, a, a diploma on the wall doesn't tell us a whole lot at, at one end of the spectrum and then some of the micro-credentials could be almost limitless in terms of ways that you could kind of click through and see demonstrations of what the learner knows. Uh, but as Nikki could probably comment on, um, when you're talking about this as part of a recruitment funnel and you're at the top of the funnel, which is a high volume game, you have so many people who are trying to screen and assess, okay, do I interview them? Do I move them to the next stage? And at that stage, even when you're driven by data and analytics and algorithms, it can be hard to figure out, you know, how much detail can the employer drill down into, uh, which itself signals the idea that all of these developments could really change uh, how hiring works and how the degree works as a signal. No, I agree with that. And I, and yeah, and I, and I do think, you know, you do see employers trying to look at different ways to be able to evaluate candidates. So, I mean, I think combination of your traditional transcripts, grades, company-based kinds of, um, ways of being able to demonstrate that, whether it be through e-portfolios or some other way. I mean, I think, you know, future-wise, we see that being a lot more embraced than what it is today. And I do think that that will give way to that future-wise. All right, I think we have a final a video question. Um, hey. So I'm Kelly Morrison and I'm with American Public University System, but I'm actually in Bozeman, Montana, not at our office in Charlestown, West Virginia. Today. Excellent. So I work remotely. Great. Yeah. So my question was really more um, kind of a, a combo question statement because you guys were talking about how will institutions accept outside learning? And my statement back was, well, we've been doing that for the last 40 years, mm. right? With PLA and with ACE credit recommendations. So how do you see this as different and different enough to not make that as acceptable? Yeah, the idea of overlap and the fact that some of these things can coexist. So to your point, we've long had prior learning assessment and, uh, uh, you know, in institutions, uh, perhaps because of how they think about quality or how they like to think they define quality or, or revenue or regulations, right, are often hesitant to accept outside credit in certain circumstances. Um, and what we're talking about here is more the, uh, you know, 
well, or at least how I'm thinking about it is how does the market drive things, right? Do institutions become kind of forced or, or advantaged to accept and recognize outside credit? And I think in a world, uh, and it's not just like outside credit, right? It goes beyond, sure. this is important, beyond the academic construct. The idea that and this is behind competency-based education, of course, uh, you have certain skills and knowledge and abilities and things that you can document that compare to a formal credential or a formal educational program. And now we have many different inputs into that. Some of it, and we could point to an example of all these today, some of it's going to come from uh, whether it's military training, on the job training, a community college, a course you did online through a MOOC, a formal for credit course and a master's program, non-credit course or something else, you're, you're going to get as an individual, you're learning from different sources. And then there's a question of, you know, how is that assessed and endorsed and standardized? And then what will it roll into as a credential? Because the credential is uh, very important and very valuable versus just the sum of all the learning that you have. And there have been structural barriers to that. Um, I, I think in, in many regions, an institution cannot historically accept more than a quarter of the credit toward a graduate degree from the outside. And so that becomes a limitation. Um, so there's, these, are, these are existential questions, I think. And um, you know, I, I, I like to consider myself an optimist, but that, that's one of the, what you flag is one of the big, big kind of barriers and questions, especially very elite institutions or you know, if you're an institution that's not thoughtful about uh, assessment or outcomes orientation or your online education approach, how would you even be or how would your faculty or whoever the decision makers are be in a position to kind of assess and import these things? So there's, there's issues with the model of higher ed. And that's where I wonder, well, the, the, the fact that learners are going to accumulate and have these credits or employers are going to demand them, will that drive things or... Will there be, you know, government mandates in certain states or, or other ways to sort of seed the market? Uh, we've hit the end of our time. I knew it would go by fast. I want to thank again our guest. Um, I, I think one of the things that struck me in this conversation has been that in a way, these micro-credentials are really a way in some cases to kind of hack the traditional higher ed system or to come or for new players to try to enter and do things they couldn't, they, that weren't done before or, or maybe get at these, some of these rules or challenge some of the rules, Sean, that you alluded to. And in some ways, you know, they raise all these questions about whether they are kind of hackable or whether they, you know, or the, whether this hack is a good thing or a bad thing, you know, it depends on who you talk to. So um, it's going to be really interesting. It seems, it seems also, it strikes me as very early days. Um, a lot of these questions are really answered with more questions. But I really appreciate you both joining us today and to try to sort through it. Um, I think it's, 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 I've learned a lot and hope, hope folks here have too. Um, thanks, thanks so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. This episode was produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.